Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Lori Keefe, a member of AFSCME Council 32. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming in WART possible. I am Mike Bernhard, a retired member of the IBEW. This week, we learn about an innovative program by nurses in Dane County, follow up with organizing efforts at Starbucks, Amazon, and Raven, take a look at union density reports, share the latest COVID report, and much, much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of Wart and Labor Radio. Last Thursday, nurses presented an innovative trauma and recovery program to the county board. Frank Emsbeck has the story. Last Thursday, frontline nurses and caregivers proposed a healthcare workforce trauma and recovery training program to Dane County supervisors. Nurses made the proposal to the Health and Human Needs Committee meeting of the Dane County Board. Labor Radio spoke with Amanda Klinke, a nurse at UW Hospital, about the proposal. We asked Nurse Klinke to describe the event. The meeting was to talk about like the stress and trauma caused by the pandemic. The Trauma Recovery and Training Program, it's asking for funds from Dane County to put into this recovery for healthcare workers and then also as training to bring in more healthcare workers into Wisconsin. Nurses also shared the results of a poll which illustrated the challenges faced by nurses and healthcare professionals. Also, there was a polling firm present who had polled 920 nurses before this meeting in Dane County and 86% of those nurses, well, nurses and healthcare workers expressed stress or trauma throughout the pandemic that has had a significant impact. Nurse Klinge went on to describe the alarming polling results. 72% are experiencing insomnia. I know I am one of them. 69% have had a negative family uh, personal effect, and I also fall into that category. 19%, which is really alarming, know someone who has considered or has had suicidal ideations. And 30% have uh, started using alcohol or other substance to help them cope when they're away from work. The nurses wanted the Dane County Board to endorse the program and, of course, to help fund it. So what we're asking for is $30 million in funding to bring together employees, workers, and government officials. And what the goal is, is to look at the problems the healthcare workers are facing and the community, and then look at like what's needed and then create the solutions for that. And some of those solutions would be like, potentially like no cost for mental health services and help with tuition and books so that people can, we can bring more people into our field, provide better care for all of us who have been burnt out and have gone through so much throughout the last couple of years and have taken care of everyone else. We're just looking for something so that we can kind of up the sinking ship so that we can bring back more people so that we have staff to take care of the community. And Do you, do you think you made progress? Yeah, I do. I think that it was really well received. It was really well received the first time that we presented. And then this time as well, 
it definitely seemed like they are interested and they definitely can see the need. We're facing a shortage that we've never seen before. And so I think it's very clear to everyone, like something has to be done. The radio asked if the employers were supportive of this program. The hope would be that we would all work together once this resolution's introduced and we would bring together like the healthcare workers, the government and the employers. So how does this initiative by the union relate to the ongoing organization drive, if it does? Yeah, so it's just one example of if we, when we have our union, of the many things that we can do to contribute to our community and everyone else. So having our union isn't just about like inside the doors of the hospital. It's about being able to do so much more and having avenues to improve care all across the board. Nurse Klinke concluded her remarks with this request to the community. Such an important thing and the funds are available and there's so many federal resources available. So we're just really asking the supervisors to work with us and help us because we've been taking care of the community for so long throughout all of this and we just need somebody to help us and to, you know, take care of us too. Like, Thanks to nurse Amanda Klinchy of SEIU Healthcare Wisconsin for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Workers at Raven Software in Middleton could continue their organizing efforts and the CWA challenges statements from the parent company. Scott McCullough brings this report. On January 27th, the Communication Workers of America filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board for a union election among the quality assurance workers at Raven Software in Middleton. The workers there had announced the formation of their union, the Game Workers Alliance, a local of the CWA, the previous week and asked management for voluntary recognition of the union. Management did not respond to the request. While the union says that they have a supermajority of the roughly 34 workers in the unit, the election could take more than 10 weeks to be conducted. If the Game Workers Alliance succeeds in their election, they will be the first union at a major U.S. video game studio to have recognized collective bargaining. The CWA has also filed a complaint with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, over a proposed acquisition of Raven's parent company by Microsoft. On January 18th, Microsoft announced their intention to purchase Activision Blizzard for $67.8 billion. However, the CWA says in their complaint that Activision Blizzard had, quote, inaccurate and misleading disclosures, end quote, in their Form 8K that the company submitted to the SEC on January 19th. In the form, Activision Blizzard stated that they were unaware of any attempts by workers to organize a union, that there were no strikes or work actions at its locations, and that there was no unfair labor practice complaint against the company. The CWA contends in their complaint that all three of these statements are false. There has been public union organizing at Activision Blizzard since at least the summer of 2021, when over a thousand workers across the company's many locations walked out over issues of sexual harassment within the company. Workers at the time launched the A Better ABK Organizing Group. In September of 2021, the CWA filed an unfair labor practice charge against the company. At the time of the company filing the form, workers at Raven were also still on strike, a strike that did not end until January 22nd. 
The CWA says that, as a result of these omissions, readers of Activision's merger filing may be misled into believing that the company's well-documented workplace disputes have been comprehensively resolved, and that Activision may have acted with an improper motive to conceal the true status of its workplace disputes. Bloomberg News reports that the Fair Trade Commission will be leading an investigation into whether the Microsoft Activision deal violates any antitrust laws. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Scott McCullough. Labor Radio's Carol Weidel talks with Neil Rainford of AFSCME about safety for workers staffing blood donation centers. Red Cross blood drives in the community are one way people can save lives and feel good about contributing to patients across the country. Like many essential workers, those who work at blood donation centers are understaffed and the volume of donors is overbooked. Neil Rainford of AFSCME Council 32 advocates on behalf of these workers. I do work with four AFSCME locals that represent various Red Cross employees in Northwest Iowa, around the Dubuque area, and in all of Wisconsin. And those locals represent collectively about 300 employees, and they did recently file a grievance regarding workplace safety and workplace scheduling. And the core of the grievance was really concerned around the Red Cross overbooking the number of blood donors at any given site and understaffing those blood donation events. When Red Cross workers are responsible for setting up and lifting heavy equipment, safety is another concern. The other component to this grievance is workplace safety. Some of these sites, really the mobile sites, were sites that had been safety problems in the past. For example, the way that the employees have to load in the heavy equipment that they use to collect the blood, um, the various machines that uh, separate the blood from the platelets, as well as the beds and uh, the other equipment that the uh, employees use to collect the blood are heavy and they're typically located on carts in the back of truck and those need to be loaded Red Cross employees pushed back and documented their worst days at work. Uh, Red Cross employees also did a campaign called Your Worst Day at Work. Two dozen employees out of those 300 wrote uh, fairly lengthy emails and uh, communicated those directly to the managers, telling them about their worst days at work. And those worst day stories talked about, you know, having to work uh, much later and work through breaks and work without uh, the safety measures that they thought were important. Labor relations are not smooth at the Red Cross. A national agreement for the Red Cross has not been renegotiated and local bargaining dates have been canceled. We have had to file charges with the National Labor Relations Board in an effort to secure those bargaining dates because we had uh, many, many cancellations over the course of uh, the past fall. Red Cross staff continue to speak up about safety concerns and schedules. Labor Radio will report on any progress. For Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. And now we'll hear an update on Starbucks workers' national push for a union and the company's unsuccessful strategy to slow them down. Starbucks Workers United, an organizing group that has already successfully unionized two corporate Starbucks locations, continues their push to see more locations across the country file for their own elections. New filings in Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, 
Georgia, and Florida have increased the total number of stores that the group has successfully petitioned to represent. 59 stores in 19 states across the country have now either filed for an election or publicly announced their intention to do so. Despite the high profile of the company and the public interest that the SWU campaign has generated, the number of stores that have thus far filed for an election with the NLRB represent only a fraction of the total number of locations in the United States. While 59 stores have initiated the union election process, over 9,000 locations remain unorganized, leaving the SWU with the task of finding a way to seize on the current momentum generated by their recent successes. Starbucks has thrown a considerable amount of effort into delaying further elections from being filed or initiated with the NLRB. According to a Huffington Post report by David Jameson, the company has hired Littler Mendelssohn, a legal firm that has helped other companies with union avoidance, to handle arguments in front of the National Labor Relations Board. Filings with the NLRB show that at least 30 Littler Mendelssohn attorneys have thus far worked on Starbucks union election cases. According to Jameson's report, those attorneys have largely been working with identical arguments for each new filing, arguments which have been denied by the board. This tactic, while not effective in completely halting an election, has been employed by some companies to delay a group of elections at once. The NLRB, in response to the arguments, will have to take the time to consider and rule on each new filing that the firm argues against over the coming months. Some information from this report was sourced from David Jameson's work for HuffPost. For Madison Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. The following short biography of T.O. Jones in honor of Black History Month is drawn primarily from information available from the Memphis Public Library. Thomas Oliver Jones, known as T.O. to those who worked with him, was the president of Local 1733 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME, during the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968. Hired on by Public Works in 1958, T.O. worked as a garbage man in the sanitation division. Wages were so low that even full-time workers qualified for food stamps. Working conditions were often dangerous. There were no breaks and nowhere to eat, change clothes, or use the restroom. Black workers were regularly sent home without pay on rain days, while white workers stayed on the job and got paid. In 1963, Jones and 33 other men in the sanitation division were terminated for attempting to organize a union. Eventually, the division rehired most of the men. However, T.O. decided not to return to work. Instead, he put his energies into organizing the men in public works. With the help of the local labor council, he recruited AFSCME to issue a charter to the men he had organized. The charter allowed them to call upon the resources of AFSCME in the event of a strike. By 1966, local 1733 felt strong enough to strike for better pay and union recognition by the city. Though they managed to convince a large number of workers in the sanitation division to join the strike, the city obtained an injunction outlawing a strike by city employees as being against the public health. As a result, the strike folded before it even began. Despite the defeat in 1966, Jones proved instrumental in the early stages of the February 1968 strike. He led the meeting when the union decided to go on strike, gathering up the men's demands to carry to the city. 
When the director of public works refused to raise the men's salaries, Jones dramatically announced he was ready to go to jail because as a leader of the strike, he would be in violation of the 1966 injunction. However, Jones' role diminished in importance as the strike wore on, and national labor and civil rights leaders started to take on leadership roles in Memphis. Still, Jones' early organization efforts were essential to getting the strikes off the ground. The strike lasted into April and included the I Am A Man slogan. It was resolved after the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when all of the demands of the strikers were met. I'm Keith Steffen for Labor Radio. Amazon workers in Alabama will get a second chance at voting on a union. At the same time, two new warehouses have filed for their own elections. Reporter Sean Hagerup has more. Mail ballots were sent out today for a renewed union election at an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama, the second of its kind at the facility. The revote comes as the result of a series of orders handed down by the National Labor Relations Board over recent months. In their decisions, the board determined that Amazon had exhibited objectionable conduct during the highly publicized mail-in union election at the facility last spring by placing a USPS mailbox in front of their building to collect ballots. As a result of the decisions, the NLRB called for a new election and asked the USPS to move the cluster mailbox in question to a more neutral location on the Amazon campus, further away from the building. Last week, the retail, wholesale, and department store union, who are campaigning to represent warehouse workers, filed a request with the board that the mailbox be removed from the campus entirely, claiming that no spot on Amazon's property could be neutral. At the same time decisions were being handed down by the board on the Bessemer revote, a second Amazon warehouse in the Staten Island borough of New York City filed for their own election. That warehouse employs about 5,000 workers, and the organizing group, called the Amazon Workers Union, claims to have collected approximately 2,500 signatures in support of an election. A hearing is scheduled with the board for later this month on the parameters of that vote. Further in the future, ballots for the Bessemer election are expected to be received by the board no later than March 25th, with an official count anticipated to start on March 28th. For Madison Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Are working people earning more or less this year as compared to last year? Labor Radio brings you the Real Earnings News Release. On January 12th, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released their Real Earnings Report. Real Earnings are a calculation of what your money can buy by taking into account inflation. Just because you earn more doesn't mean that the money can buy as many goods and services today as it did yesterday. The Bureau of Labor Statistics compared the real wages of production and non-supervisor employees between December 2020 and December 2021. During this period, real wages decreased 2%. There was no change in the average work week. So if your perception is that times are a bit tougher, your perception is right. This is Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. And now, we'll learn about trends in union density over the past year. Labor Radio Sean Hagerup reports. The Bureau of Labor Statistics released an analysis of union membership and density in a posting on their website on January 20th. This report, which is released on a yearly basis, 
tracks changes in the composition of union membership from year to year and attempts to fit trends in membership to larger trends in national employment. Overall, the 2021 to 2022 report found that union membership decreased by 241,000 over the course of the year. This brings the total number of workers represented by unions down to 14 million. A majority of those losses came from public sector unions, which lost approximately 191,000 members during that time span. The union membership rate of public sector workers, which sat at 33.9%, continued to be more than five times higher than the rate of private sector workers represented by a union, which was at 6.1%. Additionally, the Bureau found that from 2021 to the beginning of 2022, union density dropped from 10.8% of the workforce to 10.3%. The report attributed this drop in proportion to a resurgence of non-union employment in the labor market. Rebounding from a dip of non-union work during the heights of the 2020 pandemic response. In 2021, the number of men who were union members at 7.5 million changed little, while the number of women who were union members declined by 182,000 to 6.5 million. After experiencing an uptick in union membership in 2020, with membership growing to 227,000, Wisconsin's union membership declined by approximately 12,000 in 2021. That number represents 7.9% of the state's employed workforce. Thanks to the Bureau of Labor Statistics for compiling the data used for this report. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Breaking rocks out here on the chain Breaking rocks and serving my time. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang. Cause the done convicted me a crime. Hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working. But I still got so terribly far to go. And next, Carol Weidel gives us this week's COVID report. The number of deaths in the United States due to COVID is approaching 900,000. As of today, more than 897,000 deaths due to COVID are reported. In Wisconsin, the case trajectory is falling. Cases have risen 43% in two weeks. Dane County cases fell by 40% during this 14-day period ending Sunday, January 30th. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals also decreased with an average of 166 hospitalized each day. Percent positivity was 16%. While percent positivity is decreasing week by week, it is still elevated. A higher percent positivity means that we are still likely missing cases in our case counts. The BA2 Omicron variant was detected in Dane County on January 28th. A recent Danish household study found that BA2 is more transmissible than BA1, more easily infects people regardless of vaccination status, and unvaccinated people are more likely to transmit it to others. If you need a test, same-day appointments are often available at the Alliant Energy Center. To make an appointment and pre-register, visit the website publichealthmdc.com coronavirus slash testing. 
While there are many testing sites in Dane County, the Monona Medicine Shop at 4205 Monona Drive is open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. and Saturday, 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Please note that this is a self-swabbing location where you take your own sample. The current Dane County order requires face coverings among people ages 2 and older when in most enclosed spaces open to the public where other people are present. This order will expire on March 1st. The N95 is the respirator approved by the National Institute for Safety and Health to filter 95% or more of small particles. These masks are worn when dealing with dust at home during a do-it-yourself project. Hardware stores are a good source for N95 masks. N95 respirators have not been tested for broad use in children. KN95 is the Chinese equivalent of the N95 mask. They have similar filtering properties to an N95, but they have not been tested or regulated by NIOSH. They are usually shaped like a clamshell with a vertical seam down the center. In other COVID news, Governor Tony Evers announced February 3rd that approximately 70 Wisconsin National Guard members completed a two-week certified nursing assistant training course at Madison College last week. They are now assigned at various healthcare facilities across Wisconsin. This effort, announced in January, is part of a collaboration among the Evers Administration, the Wisconsin National Guard, and the Wisconsin Department of Health Services to bring needed staffing support to Wisconsin's hospitals and nursing homes. Sources of information for today's story are the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, Public Health Madison and Dane County, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, and the Wisconsin National Guard. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Here's Robin G. with an announcement about an important action tomorrow. Join a picket to stop the war with Russia over Ukraine tomorrow, Saturday, February 5th at noon in downtown Madison. The picket, hosted by the Four Lakes Greens, will take place outside Senator Tammy Baldwin's office at 30 West Mifflin Street. The action is to protest her support of the Biden administration's war policies and to join in a day of action for peace with Russia called by Code Pink and other organizations. Specific demands include stop the war with Russia, stop NATO expansion, stop sending weapons to Ukraine and the EU, obey international laws and the UN Charter, resolve conflict within the United Nations Security Council, and de-escalate the threat of nuclear war. For more information on the Day of Action, go to CodePink.org. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Lori Keefe. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach and Ellen LaLaCerne, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Gabowski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hamm, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, and Carol Wilde, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Mike Bernhard. 
we'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. <laughs> 